Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. Well, hello everyone. It's great to have you all here. Uh, I'm very excited about this talk. We have Dr. Bronwyn McShay, who's a historian, studied at Yale, and she's here to talk, tell us great stories of forgotten lay patronages, patronesses of the church. And I've heard her give little snippets of this before. Uh, I don't know about this talk, but about lay patronesses, and, and I was... They were such great stories, I thought, I have to get her to speak at St. Joseph's. And so now I'm very excited that we have her here for real. And, it was, and she's a New Yorker as well. So uh, I'm very excited to have her here at St. Joseph's to, to give this talk. So uh, you want, I'll start with a prayer quickly. All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, Please be with us. Uh, guide us through this talk. Help us to, to see your will at work in your church, especially through the many incredible women through her history, that they may inspire us to live a life of holiness. And may, let us pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the name is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So thank you so much, Father Boniface, um, for the introduction and for the invitation to speak here this evening. I'm, I'm quite honored to take part in the ongoing Thomistic Institute uh, lecture series, so, so thank you so much. And I've been looking forward to speaking to this audience in particular, uh, to speak both as an historian who likes to open windows onto the past, and also as a member of the Catholic laity who looks to our church's past for some guidance on how to live faithfully in our present time. Uh, with its problems, its confusions, but also its possibilities and reasons for hope as well. And as Catholics, uh, we tend for good reason, when we consider the past, when we look at history, to look to the wonderful array of canonized saints whom the church puts before us as heroes or heroines of the faith. And I do this often. So some saints that have been good friends to me over the years, for example, have been St. Augustine of Hippo and also Catherine of Siena, my, my patron saint. Now, in my line of work, however, as an historian, I have the unusual opportunity of learning about many other remarkable figures in the church's history, um, even great ones who've been forgotten over the centuries or who just aren't on our ordinary Catholic radar screens, maybe because they're a blessed and they're not a saint yet, or their cause has been stalling for whatever reason, or they're just a really interesting figure that was not taken notice of uh, for canonization necessarily. Um, now, the discipline of church history, and I teach church history, uh, was traditionally developed primarily, primarily and understandably by clergymen and religious 
often with institutional affiliations uh, with the subjects they were investigating. So um, the history of the Jesuit order would have been done by Jesuits themselves, or um, history of an archdiocese might be done by a priest of that archdiocese kind of in the, uh, in the archives. Now, partly as a result of this, I wouldn't say it's intentional by any means, but partly because of the traditional way church history was done. A rather large segment of the church, the roughly 99-plus percent uh, that is the laity, and without which, as St. John Henry Newman once quipped, the church would look rather silly, uh, the laity traditionally has not appeared with proportional representation in church history uh, narratives, in the annals of church history. And it's only been in recent times that this is starting to change as more opportunities have opened up for research in this direction for scholars like me as well, uh, and others to pursue. Um, now, with all this in mind, I want to tell you tonight about a remarkable, but until now largely forgotten Catholic laywoman of a distant time and place, um, the 17th century in France, who I have come to know, especially while researching and writing her first modern biography, and I have several commercials this evening. So um, that book, this book, in fact, La Duchesse, uh, The Life of Marie de Vignero, it just came out this year from Pegasus Books here in New York City. And I'm going to tell you a bit of her story and why I think it's significant for an audience like this. Uh, but then I will zoom out from her story and illustrate how she's just one in a long line of remarkable and indeed great Catholic laywomen of the past who, like her, could stand to be a bit better known today and who will also come to be better known, I hope, when my next book comes out um, from Ignatius Press uh, this, uh, this coming spring. Um, it's entitled Women of the Church, What Every Catholic Should Know. And we don't have a cover yet. I'm hoping to use this wonderful painting of the Pentecost painted by a female artist of the 16th century, Plotilla Nelly. Uh, but we may not, it may not be able to fit on the cover, uh, so we'll see. Um, so this is partly a preview of some stories, of, of many stories I'll be telling uh, in that book. And the women's stories that I want to tell you tonight uh, will help us, I hope, see with new eyes, not just how important women have been, but how important lay leadership, or what Pope Benedict XVI and other contemporary church authorities have called lay co-responsibility with the clergy, how important this has traditionally been in our church, that it's not a newfangled idea, even if we use new language for that. Um, and I, I, the, these stories help us see, I think, that lay leadership in and for the church was for many centuries far more integral to our church's flourishing as the body of Christ on earth than most Catholics today have had the opportunity as I have had to learn. So let's begin with um, this woman, Marie de Vignero. These are some photos of the Petit Luxembourg uh, in Paris, uh, where the president of the French Senate has his offices. This was her home a long time ago. And these are photos I was uh, privileged to get to take. I got a private tour. Um, uh, in that building uh, last year. On April 17th, 1675, an elderly French woman died from breast cancer in her grand home in Paris, the Petit Luxembourg. And her name was Marie de Vignerot, but she was known best by her title, La Duchesse d'Aguillon, or we could say the Duchess of Aguillon. Several days later, a priest named uh, Father Jacques Charles de Brissassier eulogized her at a church of the French Foreign Mission Society seminary, a seminary that she had helped to found. And in front of many other clergymen, Father Brissassier lauded the Duchess as more like a bishop 
than like a typical aristocratic lady. He also said she was, quote, priestly or sacerdotal was the word in French he used in her zeal for the Catholic Church's evangelistic labors in the Americas, Africa, and Asia. Now, if such language sounds strange to you, to, to liken a noblewoman to a bishop or to call her priestly in the 17th century, it might be because you assume, as I did for a long time, that churchmen in eras before Vatican II didn't talk about lay people, and certainly not lay women in any such terms. But this is a bit of a faulty assumption due to our lack of remembrance in modern times of traditional forms of lay leadership in the church that gradually disappeared for various complicated reasons decades before most of us were born. Now, as a high-ranking wealthy noblewoman of her time, the Duchess of Aguillon was able to contribute a great deal to the institutional and spiritual development and renewal of the church. And she was admired for this in her day by kings, statesmen, archbishops, and even popes. Now this duchess, I should clarify, was able to become a leader in the church in France at the time, partly because of the family she was born into. She was the beloved niece, the protege, and the heiress of Armand Jean de Plessis, the Cardinal Duke de Richelieu. Some of you may know him from the Three Musketeers, Cardinal Richelieu. He was King Louis XIII's prime minister, and he veritably ruled France for a time. Uh, he was one of the wealthiest men of his age, as well as one of the most uh, powerful and politically astute. Um, and, and opinions ran very high for and against him in his day. Now, it was due to some strings that Richelieu pulled that the king gave his niece considerable powers as a duchess in her own right. And what I mean is that she, she held the powers of a duke, basically. She was not a duchess by virtue of being married to a duke or being the daughter of a duke. She held the powers of a, a duke as a woman. Uh, and she was 34 at this time. And her father, Richelieu's brother-in-law, uh, had been a marquis, not a duke above that, and he had died when his daughter was only 20. Now by that point, by the time she was 20, she was already a childless widow, as her husband, also a marquis, had sadly been killed in battle. Now not long after this, uh, the future Duchess of Aguillon was appointed as a high-ranking lady-in-waiting at the French royal court, and in this position, she deftly assisted Richelieu's rise to power and with her exceptional intelligence and discretion, along with the work that she put into becoming one of the great hostesses of, of Paris, uh, social hostesses and literary patronesses of the age, she really became indispensable to her uncle in ways that he had not envisioned. So she counseled him, she sometimes spied for him, sometimes stayed his hand against political enemies he might have jailed or executed. And when he was busy with matters of state, she sometimes acted on his behalf, meeting with clergymen, political officials, writers, artists, and others who not only could be useful to his political administration, uh, but who could influence French political, cultural, and religious life in ways that she believed in. So she, she started to use this bit of um, influence she had with the most powerful man in France for causes she cared about. Now, this laywoman's influence in church and state affairs increased once she was elevated as the Duchess of Aguillon and a peer of France. A peer of Fran uh, France is somebody who had a special status as um, kind of a small group of nobles 
who could treat the king like an equal uh, in certain settings, and, and they had sort of special rank, even above the highest nobles of the kingdom. So as one of the most powerful nobles in France, Marie now got to help choose some of the bishops of the French church. Bishops were not in those days generally chosen by the popes. They were chosen by a mix of, of means, including by uh, the French king in France. He had sort of a special privilege that the pope allowed to choose bishops, and he would often choose people that Richelieu and others advised him to choose. And so she had a say in this. Um, <clears throat> and she favored men of talent and virtue who were committed to fighting corruption, and corruption still affected the church in France in this time, long after the reforming Council of Trent in the 16th century. Now, taking much more than a perfunctory interest in these responsibilities, uh, the Duchess of Aiguillon, from her mid-30s onward, began to make major marks on the life of the church in France and in lands overseas where the French had influence or were expanding colonially. So this was especially true after Richelieu died and entrusted her with most of his vast fortune. And when I, just, when I describe this fortune as vast, uh, it, it, it's hard to kind of fathom how, how wealthy he was compared to even some of the wealthiest uh, people in France at the time. And he entrusted much of this fortune to his niece instead of his nephew, who proved to be a bit of a disaster. And by, by virtue of French law, should have inherited more than he did. Uh, but instead, his sister um, kind of took over the family. And Richelieu, interestingly, also bequeathed to his niece uh, privileged access to his vast political, ecclesiastical, and social network. She had his, his political papers were in her hands. They were not given to the French crown. They weren't even given to his successor's prime minister for many years. So she actually had access to this tremendous network of contacts in, in church and state affairs. Um, and, and so she was, she was uh, very useful to the, uh, the royal court even long after her, um, her uncle had died. So from 1643 onward, she maintained a lot of power at court at the side of the Queen Regent, Anne of Austria, and a very young King Louis XIV, uh, the Sun King. If most people, if they know any French king, it might be Louis XIV, uh, the Sun King, who reigned for a long time. He was very young at this time. She also wielded a tremendous degree of influence, not just because of her wealth, but also because she had a growing reputation as simultaneously one of the most devoutly Catholic charitable, educated, cultured, and powerful nobles in France. And this enabled her to rally many devout clergymen, religious, and lay people around her, and to pursue and oversee a truly remarkable array of projects for the church that were close to her heart. And I'm going really quickly through these. Um, these included, for example, uh, establishing charitable hospitals for the poor, um, establishing women's religious communities such as the Discalced Carmelites and other contemplative orders convents in France, as well as new kinds of social charity and educational-oriented women's communities such as the Ladies of Charity. Uh, the Ladies of Charity was one of the most innovative lay women's organizations ever founded, and she served for many years as its, as its president, uh, connected to the Daughters of Charity founded by St. Vincent de Paul and Louise de Marillac. Uh, she also uh, did a lot to reform morally corrupt and spiritually lax parishes, kind of using her clout, her connections, her, her um, network of clergy and religious uh, that, that uh, they were sort of united in this 
project of reforming parishes, beginning with her own parish of Saint-Sulpice in Paris, uh, where she established the new Sulpician Fathers and their first seminary. She also funded, that's not a, from her era, that, that photo, I just, <laughs> I couldn't find a good kind of Eucharistic image from the 17th century, but uh, so there we go. Uh, a nice uh, ad orientum moment there. Um, so uh, funding and promoting benediction services and holy hours in various churches was also very important to her. Um, and this stemmed from her great love of the Eucharist that she had developed when quite young. Um, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but she, for a time, uh, discerned she was trying to become a Carmelite nun. And Richelieu kind of did not let her pursue that path. Um, but she developed a very profound love of the Eucharist uh, when she was young that she carried with her her whole life. Uh, she also established and sustained schools for poor girls, other social charitable ministries, and a number of other seminaries to assist with the formation of clergymen who were, as many still were not then, long after the Council of Trent, well-educated, well-formed in Catholic orthodoxy, spiritually and morally disciplined, competent in preaching, and dedicated to their priestly callings for God's sake. There was a problem in the church at the time. Many people would join the priesthood because it was a tradition in their family to send a younger son or because it was seen as a career path primarily. Um, and a lot of, uh, even some uh, bishops were kind of, they didn't necessarily have a sense of real personal calling to this life. And the Duchess was very, very concerned uh, to, to make sure men really went through processes of discernment about this and did not uh, take on this calling lightly. Now, if I were to draw you a map of all the Catholic institutions throughout France that the Duchess of Aguillon funded and had an enterprising hand in and actually founded as well, you'd be truly staggered by it. Uh, but, but I would then have to zoom out from that map and also show you a map of the world of the 17th century uh, dotted with various places around the world where she also funded from France and informally directed and oversaw various other Catholic projects. And as it happens, I made such a map. So it's not very, not very high tech, um, rather awkwardly large dots, for example. Um, so this is her, what I call her global empire of Catholic projects around the world. Now she let, never left France, but she had a truly global reach in her uh, influence. So this map includes, as you see, um, uh, not just France and Europe, uh, but it also includes the Caribbean region, French North America, several cities in North Africa, Aleppo in Syria and other locations in the Middle East, the island of Madagascar off Southern Africa, Siam or what became known as Thailand in the Far East, and several other locations too um, in South and, and East Asia. Now the Duchess became famous indeed, and, and she was famous in Rome, the Pope, the Pope of, her, of, her, of uh, the 1850s admired her for this. She became famous for her dedication to Catholic missions far from Europe. And more than any other individual in France at the time, she can be credited for helping to put Catholic France fully on the map, so to speak, as a land that sent out missionaries around the world alongside Spain and Portugal, who had a bit of a monopoly on missions for a time in this period. Um, now, you should be aware um, that in those days, Catholic rulers and other lay elites generally sponsored Catholic overseas missions. They, they kind of provided the support and the wherewithal for um, uh, missionaries to actually go uh, to places overseas. Popes and, and prominent churchmen blessed these enterprises, but they didn't have the, the means to actually kind of 
send people out this way. Um, now, some of the missions that the Duchess was behind were the first missions, hospitals, and seminaries established outside of France uh, of St. Vincent de Paul's priestly congregation, whom we know as the Vincentians, but whom the French know as the Lazarists or les Lazaristes. Um, and the, these were in Rome, in Tunis and Algiers, in Ottoman-controlled North Africa, and in Madagascar off the southeastern coast of the African mainland. And indeed, I want to stress how important the Duchess of Aiguillon was in helping St. Vincent de Paul, a priest of peasant origins, become St. Vincent de Paul as we know him historically. She was one of his first major patrons when he was launching missions to the poor and the sick and starting seminaries for his new priestly society, the Congregation of the Mission. And over time, uh, she was one of de Paul's most generous patrons and also his most persistent. She sometimes got the saintly priest who could be quite cautious by nature to launch more and more experimental projects in and beyond France than he was inclined to do on his own. Now, the Duchess's most significant contributions to the church's uh, missionary expansion unfolded at the highest levels of ecclesiastical politics. So the Duchess was a driving figure in the activities of a secret society. I always like talking about this secret society, the Compagnie du Saint-Sacrement, the Society of the Holy Sacrament. Uh, this was a fraternity of elite laymen and clergymen. Women were not allowed to formally be members, but they would meet in her living room a lot. So she was sort of, um, she was very involved with them anyway. Um, and um, the Society of the Holy Sacrament, it was a group of uh, laymen and clergymen in France dedicated to the reform and the renewal of the church, very often in cooperation with good French bishops. Sometimes they had to work around bishops who were not cooperative with this project. Um, and uh, the Duchess and members of this society were behind the establishment, for example, of the French Foreign Mission Society, uh, which has a famous seminary in Paris that over time would send missionaries all over the world, um, as well as affiliated seminaries in Canada and Siam. Furthermore, the Duchess played the decisive role in negotiations that led to Pope Alexander VII's decision, that's Pope Alexander VII in the, the velvet there, um, to allow the French to establish four missionary dioceses around the world. Uh, and, and by this means, um, uh, they broke up a monopoly on ecclesiastical map drawing, so to speak, beyond the borders of, of Europe that Spain and Portugal had enjoyed since the 1400s. So I don't, I don't know if any of you remember uh, learning in school that there was a point in the 1490s when the Pope kind of divided the world in half and said, Spain can have this half, Portugal can have this half. That was not the Pope saying you can colonize all these lands. It's sometimes misrepresented uh, mis uh, that way. What he's saying is, these are places where Spain and Portugal have my permission as Pope to launch missions, and they don't have a right to go into each the other's uh, territory. So the French in the 17th century wanted to get in on missionary activity. Uh, but there had been this problem of Spain and Portugal having this monopoly, basically. So the Duchess was very involved in sort of breaking up that old um, system that wasn't really functioning that well anymore for the church in terms of mission, missionary activity. So she helped lead the effort in the 1650s to have Rome authorize French missionary dioceses. Uh, these were known as apostolic vicariates, and this is really one of her most remarkable accomplishments, I would say, as a layperson. 
And Pope Alexander VII praised her for it in a bull that he issued in 1658. And by the early 1660s, three such bishoprics were set up for Asia and a fourth for North America. And they were de facto under French royal control with the Pope's blessing. And they were considerably bankrolled by the Duchess and to a lesser extent, her friends in Paris. Now the Duchess's role in the career of one of the new missionary bishops, uh, Francois Palou, was especially considerable. Uh, the clergyman um, on the left there. Palou was the first French bishop appointed for a very large prospective mission, mission territory that was centered in the Vietnamese kingdom of Tonkin. And her influence on missionary diocese affected places closer to home for us too. Uh, even many historically informed American Catholics today are unaware that the first Catholic diocese established north of Mexico was that of Quebec. And technically a large, large portion of what eventually became the United States was, was first under the ecclesiastical jurisdiction of the Bishop of Quebec. And the first Bishop of Quebec uh, was uh, a man named um, uh, Francois Xavier uh, Montmorency de Laval. And he was uh, a personal friend of the Duchess and she had a hand in choosing in his selection for being the first bishop of Quebec. And um, that bishop, Bishop Montmorency Laval, was actually canonized in 2014 by Pope Francis. Um, okay. Now, due to everything I've told you and more, prominent figures of the Duchess's time believed that she would be remembered and honored by future generations. So Pope Alexander VII, thought, for example, that her work for the church's missionary expansion throughout the world would be enough, as he put it, quote, to carry the brilliance of her name down through all the centuries. But how many in this room had ever heard of the Duchess Vaguillon before this talk? Right. So she was forgotten, despite all this. And when the Duchess died, the preacher, Father Brissassier, whom I quoted earlier, eulogized her not only as priestly and like a bishop, but he called her, quote, another Saint Paul in terms of her, um, what he thought was her importance for the evangelization, a cause of evangelization of the time. Now, to be sure, the Duchess of Aguillon was exceptional in many ways. At the same time, she was also just one of a number of faithful, strong French laywomen who played important roles in the development, reform, renewal, and in some cases, the missionary expansion of the church in her time. And I thought I would just mention a few uh, names. Um, and I came across the Duchess and some other women when I was working on my first book, actually, which another commercial for you here. Um, my first book is called Apostles of Empire, and it's about the Jesuits in colonial North America in the 17th and 18th centuries. So the French Jesuit missions in French North America. And in that book, I actually bring in how the Jesuits uh, worked with lay people, both French and Native American, uh, they could, there was a lot of collaboration. It wasn't simply priests preaching. There was a lot of kind of um, work together and also work with religious women um, in the missions. And just a few of the women uh, that I mentioned in that book, in addition to the Duchess of Aguillon, uh, was Antoinette de Pons, the Marquise de Guercheville. She was a courtly noblewoman who was a role model to the Duchess of Aguillon when she was a young lady in waiting. Guercheville was an investor in early French and missionary activity in Eastern Canada, and she influenced the French court's consequential choice of the Jesuits as the missionaries that should go to North America. 
Uh, there was also a colonial laywoman named Eleanor de Grand Maison. Um, I don't have her picture, although they, I think they named a beer after her in Canada, so there might be a beer label with a drawing of her. I, I just didn't seem a little out of place here. Um, so uh, Eleanor de Grand Maison, although she was a young widow raising five children, was a key figure in a joint French and Native American effort in the late 1640s and early 1650s to assist large numbers of Huron uh, refugees, many of them Catholic converts, who were forced to flee their ancestral lands during the Huron-Iroquois Wars uh, of the period, the same wars in which Saints Isaac Jogues and Jean de Brebeuf uh, and other Jesuits uh, famously perished, and those, those Jesuits are honored as martyrs in the church today. Now, records of the time also contain many references to Catholic Native American women, in addition to the famous St. Kateri Tekagwitha, whose picture I have here um, on the screen. Uh, there were Native American Catholic women who were prominent in their communities, and they engaged in organized social charitable efforts, instruction of others in the Catholic faith, and devotional activities that impacted the, the liturgical life of their communities. One Native American woman named Jeanne Itawanon, for example, she lived just outside of Quebec, and she ran a Catholic school out of her home that was greatly admired by the first bishop of Quebec. Now we're gonna move uh, out from the French context, which might be welcome for some of you. Um, I, I try to get people interested in French history, it doesn't always work. Um, so let's look beyond uh, the French Catholic world that I know best as a scholar because I want to spend more time now in this talk showing ways in which the women I've discussed so far are part of a, a larger tradition um, of, of uh, lay women literally patronizing the church, helping to kind of bring to life institutions and important um, aspects of the church's history. I thought I would begin slightly on a different note. Um, some of you may already be aware um, that there were important Catholic lay women uh, a lot, uh, for example, um, St. Margaret Clitheroe, who was martyred in 1586. Catholic laywomen are, are known to have been very, very crucial in helping preserve the Catholic faith in England uh, during the years of persecution uh, after the Protestant Reformation uh, under the Protestant Tudor monarchs. Now, some uh, laywomen, they were sometimes of noble families uh, or, or aristocratic families. They helped to hide priests in their homes and ensure that the mass and other sacraments were, being, uh, were available uh, in secret to English Catholics. And they stood up bravely against a reformation that was really forced on most of the English people from the top down. It was really kind of a governmentally imposed reformation. Historians generally agree today. Now among those women was blessed Margaret Pole. And she was the niece of King Richard III of England and the wife uh, of a cousin of King Henry VII and Henry VIII. Um, and when a young Henry VIII was still a committed Catholic, he admired Margaret's wisdom and piety and actually made her a peeress of England, similar in that, to that title I told you of the Duchess of Aguillon. She was a peer of France. So Margaret Pole was a peeress of England. And this meant, and she held that title in her own right, and this meant that she had a rank equal to members of the House of Lords in England. And with her wealth and status, Margaret patronized the new learning of the Renaissance, uh, an era of the era, and, and she was also chosen, chosen to serve as the governess of the king's eldest daughter, Mary, whose mother was Queen Catherine of Aragon. 
Henry, Henry's uh, first wife, whom he discarded for Anne Boleyn. Now, Margaret Pole was the mother of four sons and a daughter, all of whom were adults when Henry VIII divorced Catherine and married Anne Boleyn and set the English Reformation in motion. And her son, Reginald Pole, was made a cardinal in 1537 by Pope Paul III uh, after opposing Henry VIII's break with Rome. And Reginald was also rumored to be involved in secretive efforts to reinstall a Catholic government. And so his mother and some of his siblings were all arrested for their suspected involvements in Catholic plots against the king. So Margaret, who firmly opposed the path that the king had chosen in England, knowing her life was in danger by doing so, uh, was, she was arrested and, and um, spent over two years imprisoned in the Tower of London with one of her grandsons and a great nephew. And she was beheaded as a traitor on May 27, 1541, at the age of 67, but not before suffering the loss of two of her sons to the same fate. Now, I want to mention here, too, uh, although I won't get into details about this now uh, in, in the way that I will in my book, Women of the Church, that Catholic laywomen played a very important role in safeguarding the faith two centuries later in France, we're going back to France, um, during the most radical phase of the French Revolution. And some of them paid the ultimate price in the process, uh, as famously did some nuns, such as the Carmelite martyrs of Compiègne, and others whose causes for canonization are today open. In the early 1790s, the revolutionary French regime attempted for a time to replace the true mass with a state-approved, watered-down, enlightenment-friendly uh, counterfeit. Um, and fr uh, French Catholic laywomen really resisted this to a large extent, and they even risked their lives sometimes harboring priests and even resisting government officials when they were trying to shut down uh, masses. So, and um, historians actually credit many of these women who were not of high education in, in most regards, in most instances, uh, with kind of being a real stop to some of the worst violence and radicalism of the French Revolution, that the, the tide began to turn partly uh, as a result of kind of peasant women's resistance to the radicalism of the, re of the revolution against the church. Now, we're going to look at some other places around the world. Um, so let's look to uh, southern Europe, the Mediterranean. Another very interesting but little-known figure, I could not find a good portrait, only this sort of grainy close-up um, online. Uh, this is another duchess who was born in the 17th century, and her name was uh, Maria de Guadalupe de Lencastre y Cardenas Manrique from Portugal. Um, and she's Portuguese, but I just used a half Spanish accent there. Um, <laughs> so she was best known as the Duchess of Aveiro, and she lived from 1630 to 1715, and she was married to a Spanish duke, the Duke of Los Arcos, and the two had several children. And over time, this duchess became very well known as exceptionally intelligent and able to converse with some of the best minds about scientific developments and intellectual debates going on at the time. This is kind of a, the eve of the, the Enlightenment, really. Uh, so scientific revolution is kind of underway. And she also became famous for her patronage of the arts and her own skill as a painter. So she was a multi-talented woman. Um, now, like the Duchess of Aiguillon in France, 
She was also famous for her very proactive support of Catholic missions around the world. And she was especially supportive of the Jesuit order, uh, one of the most active missionary orders of the time. And she took it upon herself to become a major patroness of the Jesuits' missions in various parts of Asia, Africa, and the Pacific region broadly. And there, there's not necessarily, a, there's not a good book yet on this woman. Um, there's some scholarly studies, but I think she's another remarkable Catholic woman whose life um, hopefully will be written uh, in the length it deserves um, by, it can't be me because I don't have the language skills. Um, and so she was very, uh, prominent, interesting woman, one of these interesting Catholic figures that I stumbled across in my, in my work and um, kind of has helped change my sense of what lay people uh, were able to accomplish, even lay women who were not allowed to hold certain um, offices politically uh, in the time. Now, so far, I've been giving you examples of lay women uh, in the history of the church who lived in the early modern period, so the 16th, 17th, into the 18th century. And that's the period that I know best as a historian. But these women are just a few in a very long line of important, uh, and unfortunately not always well-remembered, patronesses of the church, as, I, as I'm calling them. Now, although my book, Women of the Church, will give some examples going all the way from the time of Christ, all the way up to the present day, I thought I would spend a bit of time discussing a few medieval women uh, this evening. Um, so in medieval times, I, I picked the medieval period partly because in medieval times it was generally understood in Christian Europe that Christian rulers and their royal spouses and other family members were specially charged by God to protect and nurture the church in ways that were distinctive to them as lay leaders, as, as members of royal families or as of ducal families and the like. So Christian queens were among those lay people in high positions who shared with the clergy responsibilities for governing, growing, and disciplining the church in ways appropriate to the lay state. Now there are many examples I could give, but I thought I would highlight just three for you here, uh, beginning with an early example, St. Adelaide. St. Adelaide uh, lived in the 10th century she was from a place called Upper Burgundy, um, and a, a place specifically in Upper Burgundy that is today in Switzerland. And Adelaide was married twice, first to an Italian prince who was killed when she was 19. This is sort of a theme in some of these women, it seems, sadly. Uh, second, she was married to a Germanic king. This is Otto I. Now, joining Otto uh, in holy matrimony in the year 951, Adelaide went on to be crowned by the Pope as the Holy Roman Empress because her husband became Holy Roman Emperor, crowned by the Pope. And this was after Otto's armies protected Rome from the armies of another prince who had earlier attempted to force Adelaide to marry into his family. So he just didn't get the hint, I guess, uh, from her. So Adelaide was indeed consecrated by Pope John the, uh, the 12th in a new ceremony specifically for the Empress. So the, the Holy Roman Emperors had a ceremony that was, that was um, traditional by this point, but the Pope created a new ceremony for crowning the Empress. And in that ceremony, he anointed her, consecrated her as a representative of God who stood in a line of sacred queenship going back to Queen Esther of biblical times. Now, Adelaide took this responsibility very seriously. She co-ruled with her husband 
and she used her power to protect ecclesiastical institutions in a time of chronic warfare. And after Otto died in 973, Adelaide, during the reign of her son, Otto II, helped to reform lax and corrupt monasteries as a friend of two saintly Benedictine abbots. These were Maiolus and Odilo of Cluny. So the, the, um, the founders of the Cluny monastic movement, uh, the, the Cluniac reform, as it's often called. This is one of the most famous reform efforts in the church's history and, and kind of it, it spawned a whole uh, movement across many borders of countries um, of kind of return to the true spirit of monasticism um, and with a kind of reform, uh, for the sake of the reform of the church, it had sort of an outward goal. It's, it's like very contemplative, focused on monasteries, but with the goal of helping to make the church more broadly holier. And so she was a, a, um, a supporter of this movement. And for a time, she also served as the empress regent for her five-year-old grandson, which meant she had to basically act as the emperor until her son, her grandson was old enough. This is Otto III, because uh, her own son died prematurely. And so she, she actually kind of um, ruled more or less as, as the emperor for a time uh, and had, had a lot of uh, impact on, on the, the um, church and on reforms of monastic orders in that role. And she devoted the final years of her life to charitable works and the founding and restoration of monasteries and churches throughout her domains. Now, the second medieval queen I thought I would mention, um, I keep doing this, this is a queen of France uh, named Blanche of Castile. So I I like to go back to France when I can. Uh, She was the mother of Saints Louis of France, the great uh, king who is a saint, Saint Louis of France, and also the mother of another canonized saint, Isabel of France. So that's a record some Catholic mothers would would like to have two of their children canonized. Um, Now she has never formally been beatified, let alone canonized. That's why I thought I'd bring her up as one of these lesser known figures, because she's not um, canonized. Um, She was descended, um, she exerted leadership in and for the church in uh, notable ways. So that's why I thought I would bring her up. She was descended from the royal families of Portugal and England. And she was required in the year 1200 to marry the future King Louis VIII of France when they were both children. So they really had no say in who they would marry. They were in their mid-30s, though, when Louis finally uh, took the throne. And by then, they were already raising uh, several of their eventually many uh, surviving children. I, I couldn't quite get a, an exact number. There's definitely five children that live to adulthood, maybe more. They lost some children, unfortunately, young. Now, unexpectedly, in the year 1226, though, she had to take over France as the queen regent when King Louis VIII died, and their 12-year-old son became Louis IX. This is Saint Louis. Now, France was divided by warring factions at this time. And Blanche actually at one point had to lead an army herself to protect her son's reign. And peace was achieved under her leadership by 1229. Now further rebellions uh, cropped up, but Blanche was able to succeed in passing the baton of power onto uh, to her son, the future Saint Louis, when he was 20. And she remained her son's, uh, one of his leading advisors for almost 30 more years. Now, furthermore, when Louis left France in 1248, famously to lead a crusade in Egypt, Blanche took over again as the regent, basically running the kingdom for her son. And she actually shouldered this role 
until her death. Now, she brought up all her children very strictly in the Catholic faith. Um, she insisted on a high level of education for her daughters as well as her sons, including their study of Latin. And her daughter, Isabel, became a nun who was devoted to the poor in a very special way. And her daughter, uh, St. Isabel, ended up bringing the poor Clares to France. The poor Clares, founded by St. Clare of Assisi, uh, were active in Italy. So her daughter helped bring them into France, and, and the Franciscans were active. Um, uh, the poor Clares and Franciscans also were, were in France at that time. Um, and she was joined in this effort by the great Franciscan theologian, St. Bonaventure. And Blanche herself, when her husband was still living, was strongly opposed to the spread of the Cathar heresy in France. And she encouraged, uh, this is a very medieval example of a patroness of the church, she encouraged a, a domestic crusade against the Cathar heretics in her realm. Um, so she may have also composed one of the most beautiful hymns to Mary of the time, uh, which in, in French is Amour ou trop tard me surpris. I don't know how it goes. I won't try to sing that to you. Um, now, the last medieval queen that I thought I would mention, uh, some of you may have heard of, and it's a woman whose image I used for the title of the talks, St. Jadwiga of Poland. I'm curious if anyone knows her story at all. Raise your hand. Okay, that's, that, that's good. That means I, I, there's a reason that I'm employed doing what I do. Um, <laughs> so this is uh, St. Jadwiga of Poland. She was a 14th century queen of Poland. And she was canonized by Pope uh, John Paul II in 1997. And she's not that well known outside of Poland and Polish Catholic communities. Um, now she lived a short life. I promise I'll wrap up in about five minutes, I promise. Um, and, and she, uh, okay, I just realized what time it was and I, I was sort of misjudging my watch uh, before. Um, she lived a short life from 1373 to 1399. So she was in her mid twenties when she died. And yet she accomplished some great things for the church and Christian culture despite that. Now due to some complicated political circumstances, Jadwiga succeeded as the monarch of Poland. So that means she had the powers of a king uh, in her own right. She was just a child when she inherited this role. And her domains were then enlarged by her marriage to the Grand Duke of Lithuania, Jagilo, uh, uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. And Lithuania was still largely pagan at the time. It was one of the last strongholds of paganism in Europe. And so Jadwiga and, and Jagilo um, sort of led the final uh, effort to Christianize Lithuania. Um, so they supervised the conversion of Lithuania. Now sadly, she died very young in childbirth. As, as I mentioned, she died young. Um, and her newborn daughter lived only three weeks after that. Um, but in the, in the years preceding this tragedy, she took a lead in ensuring that her realm would not only be more Christian by the end of her reign, but also better educated in theology and other subjects. So she was hearing, for example, about the great University of Paris, where the likes of St. Thomas Aquinas, a favorite of some of our friars, and, and me, I like him too. Um, uh, the legacy of Thomas Aquinas, uh, the University of Paris, was known throughout Europe. So she wanted Poland to have a university that taught theology at a high level. And so there was a, um, there was a, a sort of uh, struggling uh, university already in Krakow 
but she kind of re-patronized it and made sure it, it got on solid footing. This became uh, known as Yag Yagalonian University after her husband. And its still active theology faculty today dates from the period of her patronage and leadership. She also established a college in Prague, which was in her domains, uh, in addition to, to restoring and greatly expanding uh, what became Yagalonian University. And she was highly educated her, herself, I should emphasize. Um, and one of the most uh, the famous graduate of Yagalonian University is, was a young Karol Wojtyla, the future John Paul II, who then canonized um, Jadwiga Poland. That's sort of a nice connection there. Um, and many other brilliant scholars studied at that university. So she's kind of known as the, the great patroness of that. Now she did other things for the church and a blossoming Christian culture in her realms in her brief lifetime. She helped establish churches and monasteries. She devoted resources to the poor, the elderly, the sick. She was skilled in political negotiation, and that was something that was needed at the time, not just for secular duties as a monarch, but you had to have political skills for building up the church institutionally as well. Um, and it's interesting to wonder what else she might have accomplished had she lived a longer life, uh, given what she accomplished uh, so young. Now, I've told you about so many uh, great lay women in the church's history. Um, to the point where maybe you can't take anymore. Um, I want you to know that I've really barely scratched the surface of all the remarkable laywomen there are in the church's history that I wish I had known when I was younger. I'm kind of kicking myself now as, a, as I'm getting older as a layperson. I wish I'd had these examples as a Catholic girl growing up. Um, and it's one reason I wrote this book. Um, so it's not just about laywomen. There's a lot of religious women as well covered in my book, of course. Um, so there's various modern women that I touch on in my book. I won't tell their, their stories to you right now, but I just thought I would show some pictures here because we actually have photographs. So for example, we have the very devout and charitable Empress Eugenie of France, who was married to the philandering Emperor Napoleon III. Um, she was saintly, he was not. Um, second on the slide is uh, Blessed Mary Ledekowska. She was a Polish aristocrat. She was a pioneering female journalist one of the first women to, to publish a, a, a magazine of any sort. Um, and she ended up founding a missionary order, the Sisters of St. Peter Claver, uh, who ended up doing a lot of missionary work uh, in Africa um, at a time when the church was uh, beginning to grow there in significant ways. Uh, she was firmly anti-slavery, I should mention. And so she also used her, her role as a journalist in Europe to raise awareness about ongoing uh, places around the world where slavery was still in practice. Um, third on the screen is Louise Drexel Morell. This is the sister of the very famous St. Catherine Mary Drexel, who founded uh, uh, the Sisters of the Blessed Sacrament, who were devoted to educating underserved African-American and Native American children. Her sister is less famous, um, she's not canonized, but. She was actually one of the great Catholic, uh, American Catholic philanthropists of, of the late 19th and early 20th century. And fourth on the screen is Julia Greeley. This is an American Catholic woman who became well known in the Denver area for her charitable activities and her promotion of devotion to the Sacred Heart. And she lived from the year 1833 to 1918. She was born into slavery. She moved to Colorado after um, uh, the Civil War. And her story is, is all the more remarkable because of how she'd started life. She be, her cause for canonization is currently open. Um, and and um, she's actually, her tomb is inside the Jesuits' church uh, in, in Denver. 
Okay, so really wrapping up, I promise. Um, I want to say some, some general thoughts. Um, basically, all the figures I've covered in this talk lived in times and places in which the possibilities for lay leadership in the church are rather different than what's possible today. None of us are titled dukes or duchesses, I assume, um, with the powers that dukes and duchesses once had. Um, and there are some great Catholic lay people I know today whom I wish could exercise the powers of, of the Duchess of Aguillon uh, to get some things done in the church today. Um, I, I said it, whatever, it's okay. Um, <laughs> now, the appointment process for higher ranking clergy has changed a lot since the old days. Uh, the, the Pope um, chooses almost all bishops. That, that, was, um, that, that is something that became the norm in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, but it's not direct parallels to the past that I'm, I want to emphasize. I'm hoping instead to sow some greater awareness of how central and critical lay people have always been in the church's history, maybe in ways that haven't been written about properly enough. And I want to emphasize that one of the key features of faithful, strong lay leadership has been a willingness to dare things, to experiment with things, and to, and to even push sometimes when some of the institutional uh, our bureaucratic structures don't seem to be functioning uh, for the sake of, 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 of God's kingdom always. Um, so they experimented, they worked within the church's system, but also they, they worked to change aspects of it uh, to, to get projects off the ground and, and running in good ways. So they didn't always take no for an answer from church authorities when matters of doing great and good and needed things for the church uh, were on the line. Now, I have a quote from, after saying that, which sounds like a revolutionary thing I'm saying, I'm going to quote Pope Benedict XVI, uh, to show I'm not a revolutionary here. Um, Pope, Pope Emeritus, uh, now the late Pope Benedict XVI, spoke about the need for more and more courageous and faithful lay co-responsibility with the clerical hierarchy for the body of Christ. Not just mere lay cooperation, with priests and bishops. Lay co-responsibility is a phrase that was first really used in the 1960s at the time of Vatican II, but which despite its newfangled sound, had a very long and eminent historical tradition behind it. And it means greater participation in the church's kind of disciplining and, and development and growth, even in some ways its governance, um, and intending to the spiritual and bodily well-being of the church's members. And lay co-responsibility requires the lay faithful to draw more from and more confidently from our distinctive and not minor or peripheral share through baptism and confirmation in the kingship as well as prophetic mission and priesthood of Christ. One more quote, St. John Henry Newman, <coughs> who Benedict canonized. In the 19th century, he urged lay Catholics to be more daring. These are lay Catholics of 150 years ago. He encouraged them to be more daring. And he said at one point, indeed, to some of the then socially marginalized Catholic laity of England, he said, quote, I want you to rouse yourselves to understand where you are and to know yourselves. I would aim primarily at organization, edification, cultivation of mind, growth of reason, because it is a moral force which will vindicate your profession and will secure your triumph. And he said, I want a laity who know their religion, who enter into it, who know just where they stand, who know what they hold and what they do not, who know their creeds so well that they can give an account of it 
and who know so much of history that they can defend it. In all times, he said, the laity have been the measure of the Catholic spirit. And he went on then to list some historical occasions when the laity were central to the church's triumph, and unfortunately others when lay people were central to the church's decline. So I hope that the stories of some great laywomen I've highlighted uh, helps to add some color and dimension to these inspiring words from uh, Pope Benedict and John Henry Newman. And I hope that greater awareness of the great and faithful lay people uh, there are over the ages uh, helps encourage you and makes you more confident in your own vocations in and for the church in the very different ways you're each called to, to witness in your communities, families, and professional contexts. Um, so there's a much older and longer tradition of lay leadership and witness behind you than even some of our church leaders today even have the language to describe. Um, and so there are countless lay saints in heaven interceding for us and cheering us on, including some who are still waiting to be canonized. Um, and so I hope uh, it, it's, it's beneficial in some way to know about some of those. Uh, so thank you very much, finally. I'm sorry, I almost, almost went an hour. <laughs> Now we have time for a, a few questions, if anyone would like to ask a question. What do you believe is the biggest commonality between all these women? Commonality. I think they, um, I, I focused a lot on women who were kind of born into positions of responsibility by virtue of their families. So that may seem kind of remote from most of us, not born into kind of royal families or ducal families, but there's something in that they were born into a world where uh, they were not focused necessarily on what they had a right to do, but on what they, the burden that they were supposed to honor by virtue of, of being born into certain families and being members of the church with high positions in the church. So I, I think it's a profound sense of responsibility. All of the women that I've talked about, as far as I know, were very prayerful, uh, very devoted, um, their private devotional life was very strong, and it, it kind of helped. Um, it, it helped uh, sort of them go and, and to kind of shoulder these tremendous responsibilities, which are not normal for most people in their society, not just among women, but also among men. I mean, the Duchess of Aiguillon had more responsibilities than most noblemen of her time, um, and she. There are stories of her in particular. She would go. Sometimes very late at night, uh, her parish priest would leave the doors open at San Sulpice so she could sit in quiet in front of the Blessed Sacrament when no one would find her to ask for favors. And she really, she really needed that. She also had a chapel in her home. Um, so yeah, I think that sense of uh, responsibility and that uh, they're going to rise to that occasion is, is a key thing. Yes. Could you guys speak a little bit to your research process, like how you came to all this information in part one, and then specifically? Things like more characteristics versus like, did she like talent and virtue? Like those little tidbits of mm -hmm. more personality traits. Okay. And then was it all in French? Okay, so the, the research, you want to know about my research yeah, process? The research process especially maybe for yeah. the Duchess. Uh, yeah. And then also, um, I might, you don't have to remind me yeah. of the, the second question. Um, the research process, uh, most of the sources were in French. There were are some sources in Latin. There were some translations into English of some materials that were useful for me, but I would always find the original French source, either in, in archives in France, uh, sometimes there were sources in Rome. Um, 
there are some archival sources and early print sources I was able to find online. It's a, it's a big mess, and basically what you have to do, I, I encountered the Duchess first in my project on the Jesuits, and I started keeping a file before I knew that I would write a book on her, but that file started growing. I realized she was kind of interesting me beyond that project, and so it's really just a big mess of material, like gathering data, and I like to describe it as, um, I, I was like jigsaw puzzles. So it's like you throw all the pieces into a box, you know they relate to each other somehow. Uh, you don't really, but it's like a jigsaw puzzle, but you don't have the, the image to work with, right? Mm -hmm. the, you have to kind of piece it together, mm -hmm. and the image starts to come together while you're working. So, and then the, the thing that was most helpful, once I had enough data and I knew that I could write a biography, um, I had enough sources that I felt like I, this, this could happen, I basically started plugging all my notes, everything into this massive timeline document. Because when the chronology, which some people think is not that important, historians are obsessed with when things happen, right? But once you plugged things, like she did this with St. Vincent de Paul this year, and then the very same day, she had a fight with her best friend about something, you know, it's like you start to see like the humanity uh, with, with the puzzle pieces together, right? So, and, and some really interesting connections happen when you're putting the timeline. And then you had a second no, no, part no, of the question, yeah, sorry. So you, you yeah. were doing all the translation too? Yes, uh, yeah, although I didn't have to translate entire documents because you basically translate the parts that you know are useful. Um, so, so yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes? How did you get interested in that period of French history? How did I get interested in the 17th century especially, right? Um, well, strangely enough, I, I thought I would do medieval history when I was in college. I knew I was gonna do history. I didn't necessarily know I was gonna become a historian. I thought I was gonna become a lawyer. So <laughs> God had other plans, um, including my LSAT score. This was evidence. <laughs> I, was, I went to Harvard, I should, full disclosure, I was sort of a Harvard brat, and when my LSAT score showed me I couldn't get into an Ivy League law school, I was like, well, I, clearly I can't go to law school, so. Um, and then I, no, I realized I had gifts uh, in the direction of history. And I love medieval history. I was actually afraid of the 17th century because it, it was strange. It seemed medieval and modern. And I, I just, something about it just was before the time where the American Revolution happened. And I kind of stumbled into it in some courses. I had professors give me sources from the time, including the Jesuit missionary sources from North America. And it was really the sources that pulled me into it when I was doing some research projects just for you know, semester-long classes. And, um, it's strange, I just, I sort of knew it once I was there, that, that, that this is where I want to stay for a while. And then when I realized I could go to Paris to do research, <laughs> that, that was a good sticking point too. So. Um, I think to what extent do these sort of marvels of play important rely, I mean to some extent obviously they do, but rely on a world before the separated church and state, well, mm -hmm. Christendom in the old sense, before the, revolutions of the, of the 19th century before mm -hmm. uh, and in response the Holy See takes everything you know on itself mm -hmm. and presumably because they because non-Catholic countries and aristocracy and hierarchies are to be trusted with these things. I mean, do we have to reinvent this model of lay involvement, you know, in the realm of, of you know philanthropy rather than put the just Yeah, do I have to repeat that question? It's complex, so it's an excellent question because um, it's something I think about. Um, a lot of these models do depend on a time when church and state 
was sort of intertwined and, and um, uh, lay people had a lot of responsibilities because, partly because the church was so intermingled with the institutions of, of political society, not just civil society, right? Um, I think, yeah, and a good example of this, speaking broadly of the laity, not just women, um, most Catholics don't know there was a strong lay presence. They generally did not have votes, but there was always a strong lay presence at every council of the church until Vatican I. Vatican I in the 19th century is the first council where lay people are actually forbidden uh, from, from having any kind of real role. Uh, and then when Vatican II came along, there were lay advisors uh, that were chosen by the bishops. But in all the previous councils, sometimes it was the, the Holy Roman Emperor, excuse me, not the Holy Roman Emperor, the um, Byzantine emperors called together the councils. There was a Byzantine empress who called together Nicaea too, actually. Um, and there were lay people present. So there, there's kind of a, the lay people are there uh, in the history. I, I, I don't know, in terms of trying to reinvent something, I mean, we have a lot of, there's many, many Catholic institutions. There's nonprofit institutions. Uh, there are, the church is intertwined in, um, civil society in some ways, even if it's not intertwined with political institutions. And there, I think there are ways in which we can kind of look at our relationships to actual clergy and religious, and maybe try to think of ways to support them in ways that are outside the box, that are not, I don't know what that looks like. And I don't think these historical examples should be roadmaps for something specific, but I, I think I'm just concerned that people are aware that this is a this went this went on in the first place, and that we shouldn't be afraid to kind of be rethinking some of these things. It, it doesn't mean you're a bad Catholic if you think lay people should have a little more say in certain areas of the church, but not others, right? Um, so, and I think some of the talk about synodality today in Rome, um, there's a recognition that something is amiss, that there's something that has fallen away in the church. Uh, the challenge is that the way that the church is structured right now, the synodal process is really orchestrated from the very top, every aspect of it, even the lay people chosen. Um, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it kind of shows the kind of uh, problem we're dealing with right now. Anyway, but that, that's a whole other can of worms. I'm a historian, not a ecclesiologist, so. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.